We have a cloud networking show for you today. Why? Well, cloud networking is an inconsistent beast from cloud to cloud and simply isn't like what we've been building on premises all these years. Cloud network is it's not unlike what we've been building, right? But but it's also not the same. So, this is a discussion worth having as this space continues to evolve. So as we consider this, there's good, there's bad, and there's ugly, and that's how we're going to approach today's cloud networking discussion, a review of these good, bad, and ugly things, where we're at, how some of the nasty bits of cloud networking can be improved. Our sponsor is Aviatrix, and they've sent us three architects to nerd out about cloud network design and how Aviatrix solutions might fit into the picture. We welcome Brad Hedlund and James Devine, both with Aviatrix and Aviatrix customer Chris Oliver with NI to the Packet Pushers virtual studio. Now, if you're listening to this and you don't remember who Aviatrix is, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to remind you, we're going to start with you, James. Would you remind us as the packet pushers community who Aviatrix is? And in a nutshell, we don't need all the details, but you know, the 10,000 foot view of what Aviatrix does. Sure. Thanks. And, and I would probably, you know, I could do it in three words, secure multi-cloud networking, you know, kind of high level, but we're so much more than that. And, and to some of the points you were making, you know, we deeply understand how to build out networking in each cloud and then connect them all together in a multi-cloud fashion. So we have plenty of customers that are just operating in one cloud today, be it AWS, Azure, OCI, Alibaba, and they're using us to deploy those networks in a best practice fashion. But then when they need to grow to another cloud, they're able to seamlessly connect and have repeatable architectures in those clouds without being an expert in each and every one of them which is, is really fascinating for me. Because they, in other words, they interface with Aviatrix and Aviatrix interfaces with whichever cloud that they are instantiating networking in. In fact, our architecture has a controller that is multi-cloud aware and is also a, a single Terraform provider. So you can write Terraform and your, write your infrastructure as code once and then deploy in any cloud. Perfect. Okay. We get the big value proposition. And if you're listening to this and you want to hear more about Aviatrix and kind of the, the basic what all they do, go to packetpushers.net, search for Aviatrix. That show will pop up. Give it a listen. So for the rest of the show, gentlemen, we want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of, uh, of cloud networking and get into that. So uh, let's start with uh, the good, which <laughs> as we wrote the script for this, that is the shorter part of the show. What is good and the bad and the ugly seems to take a bit uh, more. Uh, and, and one of the good things, James, and you can expand on this, we get this ability to build a global network somewhat painlessly when those of us that have done that before, it is far from an easy thing historically. Yeah, definitely. And and I actually, I came from AWS, so I know where the bodies are buried and some of the nitty gritty there. But you know what they've been able to do on a global scale is impressive. Just AWS alone, they're running spools of, of thousands of fiber pairs at 100 gigabits each. You, you really can't compare to building that infrastructure yourself. It just wouldn't be economical for pretty much any business other than a large-scale CSP. And you get to take advantage of that. If you think back before a cloud environment, even spinning up colos and signing contracts and getting leased lines, it could be six months to a year before you even had any type of infrastructure to even start serving up your application. But the idea is that the CSPs have built these giant global backbones and we can ride on them for a fee rather than having to go to, you know, ISPs or service providers ourselves and build out that, that network. Yeah, it's all pay-as-you-go pricing, um, which is a real value, especially as you're building out your business and growing a global footprint that you just can't compare that type of, of huge capex that you would need to 
do yourself. And they bundle that with a huge amount of services. I started there four years ago or four and a half years ago at this point, and there was, I could actually name all the services. Now I couldn't, I can't even, there's Guru and all these type of different crazy things. This is Brad Headland. Yeah, they do some really impressive things too with their global networks. So they've got, you know, capabilities like, I'll, I'll talk about AWS, for example, because I was there for the last six years. They have things like Global Accelerator and, you know, they've got this large global footprint so they can deploy things like, you know, large CDN network like, like AWS CloudFront. And then they can turn on this thing called Global Accelerator, which gives customers kind of a leverages that, that global edge footprint and allows customers to get onto the AWS backbone really quickly to, to make their performance, their end-to-end performance a lot better because the sooner you get on their backbone, kind of the, the better things are going to be. You know, and then they've got a really good, you know, deep global DNS service with like Route 53 and that that's actually has a 100% SLA. So, I mean, things like that are really impressive how they're able to, to kind of build large systems and a large network at a global scale and actually do some cool things to, to make the performance and availability, you know, beyond what we've, we've normally are used to. This is Chris Oliver that that's, I mean, from a, what's provided out of the box or where your subscriptions takes care of almost of most everything when you're from a simple VPC to VPC or VPC back to your on-prem, either IPsec or through direct connects. When you start mixing in, multiple regions and multiple clouds and stuff, that's when you start seeing the challenges uh, with what's basically offered in there. So that's what, and I was four years down that path and a couple of year, year and a half or so ago, we started finding challenges, trying to integrate with SD-WAN and manage our IPsec sessions with, with the cloud edge and then having to connect uh, Azure and AWS together and OCI. So that's that's where we started seeing the the native constructs because start become very very cumbersome, much less having to learn different ones for each cloud. So okay, so on the good side, you get all these services, you get a global presence if you want it with a few check boxes, a swipe of a credit card. It's not hard to access these things as opposed to the bad old days of calling the provider. Please, provider, can I have a circuit in? you know, Germany or Vietnam or wherever the circuit was that you needed. And they're like, well, that's going to take some time. And it was just, it was always three times longer than they said. And finally, you get the stupid thing stood up and they map it to the wrong MPLS, et cetera. We don't have that problem anymore. Kyle gives us all this stuff that's, that's, that's good, quick time to market, really stand up something fast that can be global and so on. But then, Chris, as you're saying, the deeper you go, the more complicated it is and the more difficult it is to get doing what you need to do. And Chris, you were saying a few things in there that stuck out to me. One of those was multi-cloud. As soon as you, yeah, I think you said AWS and Azure, you begin standing up networking against those two different public clouds and they're different. Is it, is it their differences that are causing you the headaches? Yeah, you have to, to learn all the native constructs for each and how to manipulate those. And then there's no way of really having a single pane of glass to look at what's going on. If there is your IPsec tunnels are down. It's it's problematic to figure out. You might you may get an alert from AWS or from your system, but you know then someone has to dig in and figure out what's going on between the two different technologies and totally different interfaces. All those pieces. Okay, but we've got traditional networking tools that we've had right along. Brad, you got some notes here in this script about this about how the good old things like ICMP and Traceroute would be effective or not effective here. Yeah, so um, back to what James was saying earlier, you know, the 
Aviatrix is like a platform that sits on top of these different clouds. And, and so you've got this controller here that's watching these different clouds. It, it can speak those different languages of the native constructs of each cloud. So you've got something to stitch it all together. <clears throat> and let's, getting back to the native tools, like let's talk about NetFlow, for example. Now as network engineers, you know, we, we love to have visibility into our traffic and see things like top talkers and, um, you know, what sessions are on the network and things like that. So, you know, one of the first things you do when you go and set up a network is you say, okay, great, I've got my architecture here. Now, where do I point my NetFlow exports to? So when you get into the cloud, you know, one of the first things that you're going to find out is that, you know, you try to use a cloud router or, or a VPC and there's really nowhere to point your NetFlow to. So you, you've got to figure out, you know, what is the, you know, is a cloud provider offering some sort of capability around flow visibility and it's going to be different between the clouds. Like, you know, in AWS, you've got flow logs, and which is a very kind of a basic set of, of logging capabilities that James can talk about in more detail. And you also have, you know, Azure's got something there. So you got to kind of figure out these things, these visibility instruments in each individual cloud, and it's not the NetFlow that we're used to. So, you know, that's one of the nice things about Aviatrix is when you deploy Aviatrix into your multi-cloud network, we export full NetFlow version nine. So you can just point, you know, to your existing NetFlow collector or we provide one for you. So it gives network engineers and architects kind of those familiar visibility tools as well as troubleshooting tools as well. I mean, I could, I could go on for a while about all the uh, stories I've heard in AWS support with customers trying to troubleshoot network performance problems in their, in their, in their network and, you know, how to get all the tools put together to, to resolve some of those cases. But in the end, we, we provide a lot of these uh, visibility and troubleshooting tools, you know, by default when you deploy Beatrix, which is really cool. It's one of the things I really love about it. And again, the point is, when you're a network engineer used to a certain set of tools that provide valuable information, you know what that information means when you're trying to troubleshoot a problem if you're looking at flow records in this, uh, this example. And when you don't have that, then it comes down to what is my context for troubleshooting whatever this issue is? So your point is, Aviatrix, if I'm running, that is my network uh, interface, so to speak. I can uh, get that information back out of the cloud. So that that is interesting to me, Brad. What, is there an Aviatrix switch or data gatherer, or is it more like cloud-native data is coming into some Aviatrix collection point that's then normalizing it into that flow format I'm familiar with? Yeah, so at Aviatrix, what we do is we provide a control plane, which is a controller, and we also provide the data plane, too, that customers can deploy. So, for example, you know, so when we're exporting NetFlow, we're exporting NetFlow because, you know, we are in the data path. So let's say you've got a, an AWS VPC, and let's say you've got multiple VPCs, and you might have multiple regions, you would deploy an Aviatrix um, intelligent cloud router in your VPC, and then you'd also deploy a VPC to interconnect all of those VPCs using an Aviatrix, um, what we call the transit gateway. And so you're, you're routing your traffic between your VPCs and between your regions and even between different cloud providers using the Aviatrix um, data plane. And then from there, you know, we can export NetFlow and even syslog. Another cool thing too, is that we actually allow you to kind of turn on a quick packet capture too. So if you you want to see, hey, I'm trying to troubleshoot traffic going from this VPC here to, to that one over there. I'm not really sure if the packets are getting to the other side. You can just go to the, 
to the destination VPC and turn on a quick packet capture on the AVHX gateway, you know, a little 10 second packet capture to see if, you know, the things are getting there. And that's one of the things that you don't have in the, in the um, cloud networks is like, where do I go to turn on a packet capture? Well, there's nowhere to do that. And the answer the cloud providers will give you is that, well, you've got to do your own packet captures. You have to launch an instance, you know, in your VPC and install a packet capture tool and, you know, get the packets mirrored there. Or even sometimes what they'll do is they will, you know, ask you to, you know, take packet captures on your own production instances if you're having some sort of obscure network, you know, performance problems. And, you know, customers just really don't want to, you know, have to do, make changes like that on their production instances. So it's really nice to have something in the data path there where you can just turn on a quick packet capture. As opposed to like an AWS having to go to EC2 and turn on the packet mirroring, tell me everything that's coming in and out of that instance. It's like, well, that's kind of okay. That's not really what I want. I really want to be in a different part of the packet flow as it's moving between VPCs, et cetera, to see what I can see. And, and that that's your point here. With the right aviators components, I can do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, multiple points along the path too. So, you know, you can take a packet capture at the source VPC and then in the kind of the transit router where it's flowing through and then at the destination as well. Like that's one of the things about some of these cloud native routers that they provide you, you know, there's no capabilities there to turn on packet captures or see, you know, direct flow information out of those. I saw this firsthand myself this morning. I was actually troubleshooting an issue with our controller and I was able to go in and, you know, a, enabling flow logs or even going in and setting up traffic mirroring. It probably would have been like 10 or 20 minutes of work. I just clicked one button that said, start a packet capture. And then I downloaded the PCAP and I had Wireshark digging in and I knew exactly what I was doing in tools that I'm familiar with. I, I'm sorry it came down to having to do an analysis in Wireshark. That means the troubleshooting was a, you, you probably exhausted some other possibilities before you got there. But when you need to do that, you need to do that. So you need the packets. I get it. Yeah. To talk about the flow logs and stuff, it, even using the native interface, you would it sounds like it would be fairly simple, though it's formatted differently and stuff. But it, it actually becomes quite complicated with, like it's pretty pretty standard for people to use multiple accounts. Uh, so from a network perspective, we have dozens, or more like actually closer to a hundred different accounts active in AWS to look at uh, two two VPCs and see what's going on between the two two different ones. You're having to jump in and out of of assuming different roles in AWS and looking through the console and trying to see what's going on. So even Thinking of it as just looking at the flow logs, it's not that it's not as simple as it would you would first think. So it, pulling it in like like with their uh, copilot uh, tool and seeing the NetFlow records there or into your native whatever you use on prem, it, it makes a huge difference in the efficiency of being having to jump in and out of the console and dig in and in and out of like I think there's like nine different screens by the time you jump in and out of two to uh, two different accounts and, and take a look at the flow logs between two VPCs. So it so saves a lot of time on that side. You're not even talking about the complexity of multi-cloud. You're talking about within one cloud provider, having multiple accounts, multiple VPCs, that all that screen hopping adds more time to your troubleshooting or your analysis. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, another thing too, some of these cloud providers is they treat the customer like a builder. They say, hey, you know, we give you these tools and you're the builder customer, go build. And they even to give you that kind of answer when it comes to getting visibility to these log records. So, 
you know, they'll, they'll provide you the basic data, like the flow logs, but then it's up to you as a customer to go build the infrastructure to actually consume those logs in a meaningful way, like to actually get a dashboard to see your talk talkers or actually to, to search your logs uh, over time to find things. You know, they'll give you a list of five different blogs to go read about different ways to set up, you know, a, uh, a visibility and, and log searching infrastructure, right? So, what I, you know, I just want it out of the box. And that's what you get with Aviatrix is, you know, it's just there. I can, I, I click on my, my, my flows and I can see them and I can search. I didn't have to go out and build anything. Oh, I'm, I'm laughing because not, not because of the flow log thing specifically, but because of other AWS issues where it's like, okay, three or four or five blog posts later, it's like, ah, uh, I have several <laughs> different ways I can do this. Uh, just, just standing up a WordPress instance, for example, something as straightforward as that is like, well, how do you want to do it? How much money would you like to spend and all the different approaches? Anyway, let, let's move on. There's more bad stuff to talk about. James, you had brought up the topic of traffic engineering here in our notes. So what do you mean by that? Because I think of traffic engineering more of of a service provider function and not something I necessarily need in my cloud network. So what are you getting at here? Yeah, and you, you know, you would think that like, you know, I just connect into the cloud, it's another you know, next hop. But it actually, in a lot of complicated use cases, you're not talking one region or one availability zone or one site, you're talking you know, tens of hundreds of sites integrating with MPLS networks, we have customers that have huge SD-WAN deployments. There's there's all of these advanced use cases that you have, and there's there's kind of a lack across all the clouds of like a, a consistent BGP experience and even just a consistent being able to control the traffic. Certainly, going into the cloud, you can use you know your standard type of like ASPAC for pending and BGP communities. Those are pretty ubiquitous. But when it gets into controlling how your traffic flows within the cloud and between clouds that's where you start to lose that control and you need that control. I mean, obviously you don't want traffic flowing around between clouds just willy nilly or, or between AZs because then there's fees involved. Well, well, right. You bring up two things. There's, there's the performance aspect of it, whatever the application is that needs to be delivered and making sure that your performance profile is good as there's some significant latency potentially between your different environments. And then there's also the cost aspect of it. That adds an, adds a, a fun new dimension to thinking about things for uh, for the network engineer. How much is this going to cost me if I route traffic this particular way? And Chris, I think you ran into this, right? Dan ran into it in multiple different ways. So, like you're saying, we have um, SD WAN as as uh, the edge to branches. We have direct connects and express routes for back to to different data centers. When a direct connect and a SD WAN touches the same VPC. There's some native behaviors that are that are just baked in there. Direct Connect wins, and and it's difficult, if not impossible, to to override those pieces. We uh, with between different regions, you have your regional routing set up for like a hub in each region. Those two, if it was native constructs, they they just have static routes between each other. So if you had SD WAN terminated in one region and Direct Connect in another, they don't even see each other, and there's no way to do failover. That stuff doesn't isn't supported. You'd have to write your own scripts. Where with Aviatrix, with BGPs running between everything, you used to have all your standard tools to manage that traffic. It makes a huge difference. Ah, okay, that that was the piece I was missing here is how Aviatrix fixed this. What, what we're saying is if I'm using Aviatrix at the control plane, I've got 
BGP and the full arsenal of BGP working for me and obeying the rules, obeying the policy, the routing policy that I build in, as opposed to whatever the cloud native networking construct might be kind of introducing unusual ways of routing things that uh, instinctively we would we would not expect. Exactly. Bring your own data plane. Yeah, bring your own data plane. (laughs) (laughs) But when we do bring our own data plane, you know, within a within a single CSP, it's optimized work within their network. Obviously, they don't care. You know, AWS doesn't care about Azure. In fact, they'd probably drop those packets if they really could. I think customers wouldn't like that. But, you know, it, it comes down to what they're good at and what they're trying to do. And by kind of abstracting away those underlying constructs that the CSPs are providing, we're able to control the traffic in however we want to, because we're bringing our own data plane and then being able to extend that between clouds. So if we want to un- ride an underlying MPLS circuit between clouds, if we want to take an express route, direct connect, you know, we, we have the ability to kind of do that in ways that you don't get with, with any of the clouds. Yeah, there's a, a really cool specific use case here where, you know, with the Aviatrix data plane, like in you've got two different cloud providers, what you can actually do is kind of set the BGP attributes of how the routes in the cloud are being advertised to on-prem, you know, and so you could have multiple clouds and then you could have multiple on-prem connections to those different clouds and you can intelligently control the traffic how to get there. And I think, Chris, you actually have a, a real world uh, story about this, about I think you were telling us earlier how you've got connections to Azure and AWS and one of the links failed and, and you were able to control the traffic to, to maintain your connection to both clouds. You, did you want to tell us about that? Sure. It actually was a few weeks back. Uh, we had um, Equinix had some problems. We lost a uh, direct connect in Dallas. And uh, even though we have express route to our Azure side, so we, you know, there was no connectivity loss to for anything in, in our AWS, even though we lost that direct connect because it was just routing through Azure, mm-hmm. and that's that was set up as a backup path. You know, we know we had to pay, we were paying Azure to egress that traffic back into AWS, but you know, users never noticed the difference. And that I don't think that I would I'm be surprised if you could pull that off with native constructs. Yeah, so the, the specific thing there was you've got ciders that are in your AWS and you've got ciders in your Azure. And since AWS and Azure are connected together through the Apatrix data plane, what you can say on the Azure side is I'm going to advertise those AWS CIDR routes down my Azure Express route circuit with a higher BGP AS path prepend or you know, prepended on a couple of times so that you know, as long as my direct connect circuit is up, I'm going to, of course, prefer that to get to my AWS ciders, my, my VPCs there. But if my direct connect goes down, well, then you've got those traditional old BGP mechanics of, well, I see another route here through this other link, which just happens to be an Azure Express route to get to my AWS networks, you know, because because of the BGP best path algorithm, I've got one available, you know, link here, which, which is a really nice thing to be able to do to, to have that kind of traffic engineering control, especially when you're connected to multiple clouds. So do most Aviatrix customers deploy both control plane and data plane? Is that even an option? Could I deploy one or the other? Or am I typically always going to be deploying both? Well, typically you'll probably be deploying both because when you deploy the data plane, that's when you're going to get kind of a lot of those visibility and troubleshooting tools we were talking about earlier. 
But you don't have to. We do have customers that are just deployed the Aviatrix control plane. And what they're doing is they're using that to orchestrate the some of the native constructs. So, you know, in our controller, we have a, a really good capability where we can orchestrate, for example, the AWS um, native transit gateway to configure security domains and, and help you steer traffic through a firewall using the, the AWS native constructs. So there is a really good use case there. If you just want to get some additional control over the native constructs and you're not ready to adopt the data plane yet, I mean, we don't, we don't expect customers always do that, just to kind of wholesale switch over. They can start with the control plane and, and orchestrate the native constructs, and then they can begin to introduce the data plane as they, you know, bring on new VPCs and things and, and see the difference between those two capabilities. Do I get better IPsec performance if I use the Aviatrix data plane? Yes, absolutely. And that's actually one of the really cool things that we have. It's actually a uh, patented technology that we have. It's called, we call it insane mode. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it's not like, ludicrous mode. It's insane mode. <laughs> yeah, I think I see what you did mode. there. <laughs> Because you get like insane IP, IPsec performance. Let's talk about that for a second. So when you do an IPsec tunnel between two different devices using um, basically an x86 CPU, which is going to be the case when you're establishing a VPN tunnel to a cloud provider um, like AWS or Azure, because the other end of that IPsec tunnel is an x86 CPU. I mean, you might have a really super impressive massive firewall on your side, but on the cloud side, it's going to be an x86 CPU somewhere, and that thing is running at, you know, two or whatever gigahertz. And, you know, the performance of IPsec is really limited to what that CPU can do. And, you know, so it has to not only decrypt, encrypt and decrypt, you know, in software on that CPU, but it also has to, you know, take packets on and off the, the PCI bus and things like that. So the maximum performance that you get with a single IPsec tunnel two cloud providers about 1.25 gigabits per second. And it's not the cloud provider's fault. It's just the, the, the kind of the law of, you know, physics around, you know, x86 CPU and computing. So what the cloud providers will do is they'll say, okay, you want more IPsec performance. Well, what you can do then customer is build multiple tunnels and then do ECMP across those multiple tunnels. So now they're putting the onus on the customer to kind of build this, um, topology of ECMP with multiple tunnels. And that can work. But what we do in Aviatrix is we do we simplify all that for you. So if you have an Aviatrix gateway in the cloud provider and you you can deploy an Aviatrix gateway actually in your on-prem data center too. So my on-prem data center and and, and the Aviatrix gateway in the cloud, what we'll do is we will build those multiple VP uh, IPsec tunnels uh, between those two gateways, and we will do all of the bundling for you in one single kind of fat pipe. And what we're doing inside, the reason why this is a patented technology is because we are using all of the cores in that x86 CPU. So let's say you got eight cores on each end. We will pin up a VPN tunnel, eight VPN tunnels in that case, each one tied to its own individual core on each end and we'll coordinate that on both sides of the link. So now what you're doing is you're maximizing the CPU on those boxes to, to provide all of it for IPsec performance. And then we're making it easy to get all of the performance because we're, we're doing the ECMP bundling for you kind of at the data plane layer, at the system layer. 
So what that means is that a customer, for example, with a 10 gig link to the cloud provider like Direct Connect or even 100 gig, they can get kind of the, the full line rate performance of that, that on-prem link to the cloud um, and have it encrypted end to end um, securely. You know, so you're not, you're not making this traditional sacrifice of, well, if I want more security, I have to sacrifice performance. Well, that's not really the case when you use our insane mode um, encryption. Insane mode makes CPUs cry. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. It hurts yep. so much. <laughs> exactly. is, is there well, any is there any mechanism when you're switching on insane mode to give me a hint about what my cost is going to be to max out a CPU in the cloud uh, for IPsec performance? So you launch the data plane instance in the cloud, which will be one end of the insane mode link, and then so. What you'll do is you will, you know, you're launching that instance to that. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, you know, make the most of that instance. So what you're paying is going to be whatever the cost of that instance is to run per hour. And then, of course, there's the cost of the throughput on that direct connect link, like the egress data charges, which is something you're going to pay, pay either way. So. Right. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you have an easy way to show that to me, or I have to go into my, you know, AWS or Azure or whatever console to figure that out. Yeah, you know, cost visibility is is uh, one of the things that uh, we want to build more into the platform as we go. So, if you wanted to know like exactly what you're paying for that, you would um, look at your AWS bill to see what you're paying for that instance, and then the egress data charges. But I think that's another. You bring up a good point there, Drew. That's another really good area where you know, networking has its costs in the cloud. And so how do I really understand what all of my networking costs are? So when you have deployed a control plane and a data plane, which is handling that, that, that traffic, we're in, a good op, we're in a good position here to provide that data to our customers. So, you know, because we're handling the data plane. So um, what we just need to do at this point is to develop the, the additional, you know, visibility tools, not only into, you know, troubleshooting we were talking about earlier, but also the cost tool. So, you know, I think we're in a good position to provide that to customers as we, as we go on with the engineering roadmap of our platform. We've been focused on routing and switching and kind of getting the packets moved around where we want them and having visibility and stuff. What about security? Can I do service chaining with the AVHX platform, like stick a firewall in the middle of the path, something like that? That's actually one of the really beautiful things uh, about it. I mean, I, I know James can probably talk about, you know, kind of how complex it is sometimes to take a AWS transit gateway, for example, and, and steer traffic through a firewall there. So if you deploy the Aviatrix data plane, so let's say you're, you're using the Aviatrix data plane to route traffic between all of your VPCs and you're on-prem, so in that transit VPC there that you've deployed our data plane, what you can do is deploy a firewall in that VPC to inspect all the traffic between all of your VPCs and on-prem. And what we do is we integrate with these firewall vendors like Palo Alto and Fortigate and Checkpoint so that you can actually launch the firewall from the Aviatrix controller. And what we'll do is we'll go out to the marketplace. You know, you tell us you want a Palo Alto firewall, great. So then you tell us the version and the instance size you want, and then we will launch that instance from the AWS marketplace. We'll put that firewall in that transit VPC, and we're not done there. We'll go ahead and configure all of the necessary subnets and all of the necessary routes in those VPC subnets, and 
We'll also configure the routes in the firewall too, because we have API level integration with these you know, more popular next-gen firewall vendors. So for example, if you add a new network on-prem or you add a new VPC with a new site range at some point later, you know, you're gonna have to go back to a firewall somewhere and add a route. Well, the Aviatrix control plane sees that you've added a new network and it knows that you've got a firewall that needs a new route in it. So it goes to the Palo Alto and uses um, API or, you know, it could be checkpoint or forward net and uses an API call to that firewall to add the necessary route, you know, that you need to do it. So uh, we call that solution FireNet and just this like point and click traffic steering through your firewall. It's really, it's really awesome. So, it, okay. So it is, um, well, it's an orchestration solution, isn't it? It's an, it's an integration that you've done with these uh, three partners, whatever relationship is that you might have. Uh, but it's not service chaining magic with some proprietary tunnel in a strange header with metadata doing the thing. It's straight up routing. But rather than me having to figure that out, deploying this in my cloud, Aviatrix is dealing with that through a, a feature. And it's actually much more than that, too, to, to get to your point. So it's not just simply the orchestration. You know, anyone can spin up firewalls and do that. The vendors have their own automation themselves. But I think in terms of you know that the deep integration, we actually can load balance across a fleet of firewalls, across availability zones, and provide higher throughput. We can go up to uh, 70 gigabits a second and higher of, of throughput across these firewalls. And it's hard to do that even with native constructs. Even if you look at AWS's newest gateway load balancing feature, they can only do 40 gigabits a second maximum through a single endpoint. So you know, there's there's these situations where our data plane is actually more performant than a, a native cloud service provider solution, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, and another thing too is you don't have to turn on SourceNet on these firewalls to maintain flow symmetry. So that's that's another challenging thing too is if I want to make sure if I've got a fleet of ten firewalls, you know, in the in the old days you'd have to go turn on SourceNet on those firewalls to make sure that you know if if firewall number one received the flow, it, it, firewall number one better receive the response to that flow, right? Otherwise it breaks. So what we do in the Aviatrix data plane is we maintain a flow table. We know exactly which flows we have sent to which firewall. So when the response comes back, the Aviatrix gateway knows, oh, I see this flow here. I know, I, I know that I sent it to firewall number one. So I'm going to go and set the response to firewall number one. So now the customer gets to maintain all of that source IP address visibility and everything. Um, they don't have to compromise visibility just to get basic traffic symmetry anymore. So Chris, Brad and James have been all excited about the firewall functionality here, but I think you've actually been using it from a customer's perspective. So, uh, so are they over the top? No, no, no. Actually, I think that uh, it's very hard to explain how much Aviatrix brings to this area. I think once it's one of the darkest rabbit holes you'll run down is trying to figure out how you would stitch the firewall in there and manage stuff. Even like the performance, if you had to go wide and run multiple firewalls, but even at the single firewall, one of your easier ways of stitching it in natively would be just IPsec tunnels, which is burning CPU from the machine that you're paying for. So you license this firewall and then you have to pay for the expensive machine and a bunch of it's being consumed in IPsec tunnels instead of with Aviatrix, it's natively inserted or it's inserted in there in a way that you're not you know, stuck with all these IPsec sessions running and, and consuming a bunch of CPU on the on your instance that your EC2 instance that you're that you've like that you subscribe to. So 
that um, I, I think it's this is actually very difficult to to explain how much they bring to the table in this in this area actually. That's that's the, okay. So the, so Chris, this is Aviatrix's own kind of orchestration flavor and a bit of magic that they're bringing to it. But if you're you're a, a major cloud consumer, I'm going to guess automation of all sorts is is a part of what you're doing here. So I'm, I'm going to make a stab in the dark here because it says this right here in front of the script that you're a Terraform <laughs> user. <laughs> so so tell me about that. If you use Terraform in your cloud operations, does that tie into the aviatrix world for you as well uh, it it brings so i mean obviously terraform can run across multiple clouds but it also operates against the the, the different firewalls and other other vendors equipment uh, for on-prem too to some limited extent but the big deal i guess from the automation standpoint is is the architecture being able to use the same architecture between multiple clouds and not have to have slight variations and stuff every time that you have to onboard a new cloud. So you can pretty much write write everything you need to deploy a VPC, deploy the gateways into it, set up your security zones that you want to do. All these pieces can be done through the Aviatrix controller, and it's the same regardless if you're in Google or, or Azure or, or OCI. You don't have to worry about that underlying pieces. So you do it once, replicate it out, and, and, and you also, you know, from communicating with its expectations from how security behaves and everything can be the same on each cloud as to having uniqueness about each each one of them. So yeah, write, write it once, deploy it in many places and not, not have to worry about the, so much of the details underneath. So Brad, what, what's going on there? Did you guys write your own Terraform provider? Yeah, that's right. We do have a, a Terraform provider and we have Terraform modules and it's all there. So, you know, the, at, at the, the really cool thing is if I want to create a, let's say a, a new VPC in AWS, or I'll just use a Terraform module to do that. And I'll specify the CIDR and all the different parameters of that VPC. But let's say now I want to create a network, what they call a VNet in Azure or a, a VPC in, in Google. I'll take that exact same snippet of code. And the only thing I have to change is the destination cloud. So I'll change the part where it says cloud AWS to cloud Azure or to cloud GCP. Everything else stays the same. The, the way that I IP address that, that VPC and the other settings in the route tables and all of that, all that stays the same. So you know, I don't have to go out and you know, get a bunch of different certifications for all of the different cloud providers just to understand how to create you know, a network. And plus, you know, each cloud provider has their own kind of different, very different automation tools, you know, with AWS, you have CloudFormation and, you know, Azure's got their own thing. So, you know, you could spend a lot of time figuring out how these individual automation tools work with each cloud provider. And then you could go, you know, and build your own scripts to each one. And you're spending a lot of time kind of building this, you know, this Frankenstein of automation scripts. Uh, whereas, you know, using Terraform and our single cloud provider, you know, you just pointed out the Aviatrix gateway and then you just, say, all right, today I'm going to deploy in Azure. So you just change a little variable that says Azure. And then everything else stays the same with your network deployment code. All right. So that was the bad stuff. And now we're moving from the bad stuff. Well, and a lot of those points I think are, are kind of familiar to people that have been doing cloud networking. We're, we're going to move into the truly ugly stuff. And uh, the first point we got here is, is multi-cloud networking from a standpoint of, 
It's not like Amazon, Azure, and Google and the rest of them sat around the table and said, hey, how can we all play nice together? They kind of been doing their own thing. They rolled out a lot of their own global infrastructure. They optimized for that and not for each other or for interoperability. So, okay, James, lay it on me here because, uh, of course, you're here to tell me how Aviatrix makes it better. So, so, so sincerely, how do you make it better? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think a lot of these clouds, they optimize for themselves and there, there's not really an economic advantage to reach across the aisle and start working with another provider unless you're one of the smaller providers that really needs that business. But like even AWS, I was there as an SA, I was not allowed to talk about any other cloud. It was AWS was always the solution or it was something in AWS. I couldn't I couldn't give a customer a multi-cloud architecture. We didn't even have the constructs to do a multi-cloud architecture. So there are fundamental building blocks that just don't exist. Doing a VPN tunnel out through the internet or or just trying to weave something together or spitting up a CSR is is not a, a you know an enterprise grade solution by by a long shot. That's counterintuitive to me. You're saying you, you couldn't even you entertained that there was going to need to be multi-cloud networking connectivity if you're coming from the Amazon perspective? AWS is the cloud, so. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. Uh, Chris, did you run into this? I, mean, do we, I, I don't know if you all, uh, how much multi-cloud you do. Yeah, so we're, in, we're in across three clouds. Uh, we started out in Azure, wound up with AWS, and then built back out larger in Azure. Um, and we, we did uh, multi-cloud connectivity through the colo. So we had the direct connects back into the colo and then you'd have to exit each cloud and go out back down to the colo. We, that's one of the areas that brought us quickly into, into Aviatrix was that edge. You, you look at the, con, that, the native constructs, there's not really a way of defining to create an IPsec tunnel between two clouds because each one of them expects you to know the destination and you don't know what the source IP or the destination is going to be until you create it. <laughs> so you actually, I'm not sure you can actually achieve those edges with the native constructs. Like I said, I think you'd wind up having to use a, fire, a virtual firewall or a, or a CSR or something like that uh, running in the cloud. So Aviatrix, again, you know, keeping the architecture the same between every cloud and and having the whole orchestration on top of it with the controller just was, it pretty quickly goes oh yeah that's there's only this is the way to go just these other ways are pretty much replication of old style craft your own config for each end and and try to to run it through the you know normal the old the old old way of of building each config up and run them like that hmm. Another potentially ugly topic is that of multi-tenancy, which is that that's the default position you're in when you're hosting workloads on the cloud. You're there sharing infrastructure with a bunch of other folks, unless you're you know buying bare metal or something ridiculously expensive because you don't care about money. So, James, help me with this. Is there a what does Aviatrix bring to the table that helps me with that multi-tenancy reality that I'm living with, the noisy neighbor problem, and so on? Yeah, and and I. I think this is where our unique solution of having our own data plane that we control built inside of, of instances or VMs, depending on whatever cloud you're using, um, you have full visibility into that underlying compute instance. And that compute instance has a share of, uh, of the overall throughput of the box you're on. And typically, you know, the larger box that you, the larger VM or instance you choose, the more dedicated slice that you get. And we're able to monitor within that slice and say, oh, you know, I know that this instance 
can get X number of gigabits second of bandwidth. We can monitor that. We can track that. We can look at the latency, and and essentially, you know, bringing to, taking that multi-tenant environment and and building a single-tenant data plane on top of it. So you get control of your own destiny, in addition to all the monitoring and the things that we can do because we own the data plane at that point. When you go to those lengths to get that single tenancy, is that going to cost me more somehow or other? So we're, we're just using the native constructs, but we're doing it a little bit differently. Got it. Got it. Okay. Although this does bring to mind another issue, and that is by default, because I am on that shared infrastructure, the cloud service providers are going to put a variety of different limits on me that, you know, the number of routes that I'm allowed to populate and, you know, and so on. Some of the, I think it long time ago, it was a hundred routes per BGP instance or something. I think now it's a thousand, but anyway, you, you got to ask if you want these limits increased because they don't want you clobbering what's happening to everybody else. How do you, how do you cope with that? If I'm living in the Aviatrix data plane, can I work around some of these limits? How does that work? Yeah. So we're, we're in the path of the data plane. So, so we can, we don't need to worry about those in many cases. We're just using the like an express route or direct connect or cloud interconnect as an underlay network. And we're building our own overlay on top of it. So we have control over that. And actually there's some of those limits are so low. A lot of times it gets down to just technical debt, the way that the providers have built out their networks or just, you know, combined with that technical debt, some, some just this seemingly arbitrary decisions, like be only being able to advertise 20 routes to on-premise. I had one customer ask me what the F AWS was thinking. And I was like, ooh, this conversation is getting a little heated. I was like, I don't disagree with you. But um, yeah, I I told him I would take that feedback to the product management team. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's two things that I've learned, two, two fundamental truths that I've learned in my lifetime up to this point. And Truth number one is that you can solve pretty much any problem in your marriage with the word, I'm sorry. And then you can solve pretty much, and the truth number two is you can solve any, pretty much any problem in networking with an overlay. And so there's <laughs> those two things. Those are the two things that I, I know work every time, right? <laughs> Saying I'm sorry and using an overlay. But that overlay can then create two new problems, but that's a different conversation. It's another different. I was just thinking that, and and how many overlays do we have out there now? Anyway, that that is a whole other conversation. Uh, okay, so multi tenancy and then limits, which leads us to another very related topic, which is what happens when I want to do something odd. I want to do an architecture that isn't described in one of the five blog posts. I'm going to get a hit on in a the AWS library to teach me how to do the thing. What happens in that? world and then if i don't want to deal with it in the cloud native way what are my i guess what are my architectural restrictions within the aviatrix world am i kind of locked into some expected architectures or can i i don't know color outside the lines however you want to think about it you know it, it at every csp scale there's there's all of these limits and the, the multi-tenancy concerns but the, the what's worse is when when there's architecture guidance there's blog posts out there and these folks may or may not have talked to the product management team to even know if it's something good to, to do or even a best practice. I've seen plenty of blog posts and I was like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this. There's this is a, a Rube Goldberg machine. There's five places that could that something could fail. And you know, everywhere it could fail, there's another, or every step in the path, there's another 
potential for issues. I was the guy, whenever I was deploying on-premise infrastructure, I would go and pull cables and SFPs out of switches, and I wanted to test that failover. I don't think you'll be able to, to locate a lot of the CSP's data centers, let alone go in and do that. So when you start to paint outside these lines in ways that you can't test and build these complicated architectures, you really can paint yourself into a corner and be in a position where uh, you know, some of the CSPs will say, well, that's not a supported configuration. Like, well, it's, it's on your blog post. Does that mean your blog post needs to come down? Or is it, it could be even worse where they're like, hmm, we've never tested that before. So you, and it's hard to know when you, when you hit these spots because you're just kind of following the blog posts and best practices. You know, when you go to the, when you go to the hardware store and buy tools, there's, there's not a guide on how to use the tools. You could use the tool very incorrectly um, and harm yourself. And you know, obviously that's not on the, the tool manufacturer. When we were rolling things out, we were kind of ran into stuff where having cloud connections to the back to the branches, there's, I mean, we, we already had SD-WAN from Viptela. Uh, then you turn around and you've got, like Azure has their VWAN, which is supposed to interact with, with uh, Viptela and others. And then and I think uh, AWS had something similar to it. So here we are in multiple clouds each one of them wanting to have some interaction with your on-prem equipment. And you know, that just, it wasn't a real good way of working the two out to make them happy to share. Okay. Okay. Park <laughs> here for a second, Chris, you got to explain this because the SD-WAN providers will make the point that a way to create a multi-cloud fabric, they'll use that term is to mm -hmm. stick an SD-WAN forward or one of the nodes uh, tunnel endpoints, if you will, up in that cloud VPC, and that and that's that. It's as simple as that, or they 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 come make it come across that way. So so dig into the challenges of that sort of an architecture. So they they're right with a handful of VPCs. That's probably very reasonable. You stand up a virtual instance of your SD WAN platform in the cloud edge, and it participates in the rest of your overlay fabric. You get into all the issues with how it inserts routes into the VPC or VNets uh, route tables. The, the, that becomes convoluted very quickly when there's lots of VPCs. You do you deploy a SD-WAN appliance in every VPC. Do you try to deploy it in in a in what would kind of be a transit VPC? Again, then it becomes a bunch of IPsec tunnels that are stretched out within the cloud infrastructure back to every every VNet or VPC that you're trying to. to source traffic to or from. Um, so it becomes an orchestration problem pretty quickly and, and quite a bit of limitations. Uh, I'm not sure where the limitation is, where the level set at now, but I think you could only do like maybe 10 IPsec tunnels off the, like the Viptela platform. So you could technically have 10, VP, 10 VPCs associated with a single appliance. So um, that's another one of those soft things that they move around on. But you know, at the time we were looking at stuff like that where if you associate two of your IPsec tunnels to a to a Aviatrix uh, node, uh, routing node in the in the in a VPC, now everything it has access to and it's is, is now available over that SD WAN with the standard BGP control plane to control how the routing will take place, what where where it exits the cloud and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're talking about connecting like the the edge of your SD WAN cloud to an Aviatrix node, and then just having a transit set of tunnels that behave like any intermediate link on a network would. Is that right? 
correct. Yeah. Okay, Chris, that, that is interesting with, you made a point there about basically scaling it and needing, having an orchestration slash automation problem when you have a lot of VPCs, which is one of those things that if you've got a simple network doesn't leap to mind, but then you get to a certain scale and you've got that, oh, that N squared problem uh, very quickly. So yeah, I, again, hadn't thought about that. And the way you describe the solution with Aviatrix makes makes a lot of sense. So we talked earlier about, you know, getting flow records and even packet captures from the cloud, and that's something you can enable. That seems like it could be useful when you run into that occasion where you have to demonstrate to someone, maybe to your cloud provider, that, hey, the problem is actually on your end, not my end. Yeah, Drew, this is Brad. Um, and I, I spent about four years of my six years at AWS in the AWS Enterprise Support Organization. So my, my job was to help customers you know, get their problems resolved by interfacing with our support teams. And the thing that I always dreaded the most was when a customer had a network performance problem or an application performance problem, that wasn't so obvious. Like it obviously wasn't tied to some large scale outage everybody knew about. And it was a, like an intermittent, hard to re reproduce type of performance problem. And when I would see my customers submit cases for that, it was uh, what happens oftentimes, you know, these uh, support teams and the service teams that are backing these network services, they're really busy. You know, they, 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 they're really small staffed. So when they get some of these, what appears to be a complicated case where the customer is basically saying, hey, we think there's something wrong with your service. These service teams are really easy uh, or will quickly push back and say, we don't think it's our problem. We think it's probably your problem. So what you need to do is, you know, give us some data, give us a packet capture. And then after you send us a packet capture, we will, you know, proceed with, you know, figuring out what the issue might be here. And every time I saw that, I would do, you know, when, when I saw them respond, asking the customer to, to give them a packet capture, I would do a face palm that would make Gordon Ramsay proud because I knew <laughs> <laughs> I knew that it was going to be another two to three days before this case gets resolved because the customer now has to go, you know, install a packet capture tool on their instance or set up a packet mirroring. And they got to go talk to the guy who owns the server instance to see if they can turn on TCP dump on that server, you know, and it would just always take forever. So what's beautiful about Aviatrix, and I think I explained this earlier, how quickly you can just turn on a packet capture when you've got our data plane there. So, you know, you can get in a situation where you can get some of these complicated cases resolved a lot faster because you're able to provide this, what we like to call it evidential data. It's, it's data where you're providing evidence to the service provider that, hey, my instance is behaving the way it should be. We really do think that there's an issue with, with your service. And there were times where there, there was kind of a, a really obscure problem with the underlying service. And once the team got the packet captures and looked at it and they found out, okay, you know, it's not a problem with the customer and they dug a little bit deeper on it. You know, they found an area of their service that, you know, wasn't performing the way that it should and, you know, things like that happen. So it's really great to be able to quickly provide this evidential data back to these support teams to, keep, to get those cases resolved quickly. Which again, goes back to this data plane point. If I've got the Aviatrix data plane, I can do that quickly because it's there rather than you know, jumping through hoops with you know, EC2 instance of packet mirroring, having some destination where you can get the packets or talking to the server owner and saying, hey, you know, TCP dump, you familiar with that? Could you run this for me? And hoping right. they get around to it. Yeah. Exactly. 
So Brad, one one last thing I want to ask you about here is the uh, the overlapping IPs problem, and th- this comes up in a in a bunch of ways. But you know, <laughs> for me, it was it was M and A activity. My company would. Uh, integrate by someone else. And then it's like, oh, here we go. RFC 1918, saddle up. And, uh, and then we go down that road. And okay, so now we've got cloud, multi-cloud operations and integrating and interacting with a variety of different networks. I still have the overlapping IP problem, I'm sure. How do you guys help me solve that problem? Yeah, you know, with, with cloud networking and multi-cloud networking, it's, we talked about this earlier, it's so easy to create networks. And, and so you can go in there and create networks. And it's so easy to, to connect to other third parties as well. Now, you can quickly create VPNs and you can, you know, do cross accounts, you know, uh, connections to different groups. So with all of this ability to quickly create connections, you, you know, you'll find yourself frequently in a situation where you're trying to connect to maybe it's a new acquisition or maybe it's a customer or a partner or a consultant that needs to connect to your cloud network. And they're using IP addressing on their side that that overlaps with yours. And, and that's just, a, that's another face palm moment where you're like, what am I going to do here? Now I need to go, you know, you might think to yourself, now I need to go deploy some router and do a complex NAT config or you know, I need to ask my my customer partner to do complex NAT config on their side, and in all of that, it takes much longer than it really should to get these connections established. You're talking about complex NAT configs. Are there are there, comp, are there NAT configs that are that are not that complex? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what was I saying? That's kind of a uh, what they call a redundant thing. Yeah, complex NAT. It's like saying red strawberries, right? Right. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So so yeah, you know what I'm saying here, Ethan. So we anticipated this problem when we built the Aviatrix platform. So one of the cool things that you can do with Aviatrix is that when you are establishing a VPN connection to a uh, remote site or an external party, in that connection, you can define a virtual CIDR that you want to assign to that remote site. And then you can also define a, a virtual CIDR that you will assign to your site and those virtual siders do not overlap with anything that you're doing or the or the third party is doing. And then as the packets come through the Aviatrix gateway that's handling that VPN connection, we will do all the natting between the real cider and the virtual cider uh, for you. And then you can just you know look at the nat tables if you really want to see them. But it's just a couple of different fields where you just put in virtual cider and real cider and you're done. You're you're not having to figure out anything else. Yeah, yeah. There's so many devices where it's like, okay, you're, you're, I'm not, which direction am I going? And I got a NAT and then, okay, yep, got, okay. And you NAT on the one side, then you got a NAT on the, the back side. And it just, your head goes in spirals, just trying to make sure you've actually got the config right if you got to build it by hand. So you're, you're actually solving the problem the same way we've had to do it historically, except that there's an easy button attached to it now. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just put in two different fields. What's my real side or what's my virtual side and I'm done. And another thing too, add on to that, we talked about, you know, complex NAT configs. They're all complex, but now imagine doing that with high availability and redundancy. So now, now you got to, if you're going to deploy two different routers, NAT configs, and how you can do HA between them. So we do that for you too. When you deploy an Aviatrix gateway, you can click button and deploy it with an, a, a backup HA gateway. And when you deploy the NAT config, the, the virtual siders will handle all of that failover for you and keep the NAT 
in a consistent state as well. Yeah, stateful nap between the HA pair. I just, as soon as you said that, you know, talk about HA, my head went to my, to my hand, just thinking about, I have stories, Brad. I have stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that didn't work out as well as intended. <laughs> oh, boy. Gentlemen, this has been a fantastic conversation. A lot to think about here. And you guys have built a lot. It's been years that I've been talking to Aviatrix. And what this product does and what it brings to the table is uh, is really interesting when you get into especially when you get into a particularly complex cloud configuration with lots of VPCs and multi-cloud and you know lots of presence and so on. There's a lot there. And man, going back to the core value proposition of operational consistency, that's something I'm, I'm big on and could be another show all by itself. But just being able to have that one interface where you can consistently deal with what are effectively several different networking platforms with their commonalities, but just so many differences in the implementation, having that operational consistency to me is a big deal. So let me shut up now. And, uh, and, and guys, let's, let's go around the table and tell everybody how they can find you on the internet. Chris is the Aviatrix customer. It was excellent to have your firsthand experience. Uh, are you a social media kind of human? Do you have a blog, anything you want to share with the folks out there about how they could follow you? No blog. Uh, I would, I'll respond to emails. You can uh, email me at Chris Oliver one at gmail but yeah no 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 social media sites beyond that <laughs> excellent james divine same question to you sir sure linkedin i'm i'm pretty active on there i also recently resurrected my my website from a dead vm so jamesdevine.info is back up after a few years offline i was also an author of the aws certified network exam study guide so that's still a pretty valid book if you're interested on the aws networking side plus i have a whole bunch of content out there from Oh, interesting. So that, that guide is, uh, so much of this stuff changes and you do kind of wonder, but you're, you're saying that book's still pretty solid. There's a core, core building blocks and understanding. We got so many requests for a V2. It's just so difficult and not working there. I don't know that I'm allowed to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And then Brad Headland. Yeah, I have a blog, uh, bradheadland.com. I've been blogging there since about 2005 or so. Um, but the best way to follow me lately is on LinkedIn, just like James. So you can find me on LinkedIn. And, and when I write a blog or do anything else, I'll post that on LinkedIn. And there's a lot of really good conversation going on about cloud networking now on LinkedIn, which is really good. So that's where you can find me. You have been blogging a long time, Brad. There's an article you wrote many years ago on bandwidth delay product, long fat networks, and so on. That was kind of a a reference when I was figuring out how to explain to people why this big fat pipe going this very long distance was awfully slow and how we were going to fix it. So uh, yeah, man, you've been been writing a long time, long, long time. Well, again, thanks to all of you uh, for being on Packet Pushers Heavy Networking today. And if you want to find out more about this product that we were talking about, Aviatrix, go to aviatrix.com. And if you ring one of those folks up over at Aviatrix because you're interested in finding out more, tell them you heard about it on Packet Pushers. And I thanks to you for listening. I hope this is a thought-provoking discussion about how you might approach your cloud network architecture. And, and again, thank you to Aviatrix for sponsoring today's episode because without our sponsors, this, this doesn't happen, everybody. We can't do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network without our sponsors. This is all nerdy engineering content for your professional career development. You can find more of these fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. And that is all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We also are on LinkedIn. And hey, we got a Slack group. Join us at packetpushers.net slash Slack. 
Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.